You're listening to L-Town Radio, the Livingston Library Podcast. Welcome, dear listener, and thank you for tuning in to the February 2024 episode of L-Town Radio, the Livingston Public Library podcast. I am Joe from the Adult Services and Acquisitions Department, and coming up in this episode, Jessica will highlight some of the best books headed to our shelves this month. Hong Mei will play a clip from a song to commemorate our first episode of the new year, and Archana will tell us about some of the great programs we have scheduled this month in honor of both Black History Month and President Lincoln's birthday. But first, I want to talk about one of Livingston's Olympic heroes. There's actually been quite a few Olympic athletes who were born and or raised here in Livingston. There's Hazel Clark, who represented the U.S. in the 800-meter track events at the Summer Olympics in 2000, 2004, and 2008. Tom Courtney was another 800-meter runner who won gold for the U.S., in the 1956 Olympics in that event, and another gold in the 400-meter relay. Andrea Davidovich uh, competed for Israel in figure skating at the 2014 Winter Olympics. Brian Jameson won a silver medal in rowing at the 1996 Summer Games. And David Kellner uh, fenced for the U.S. at the Summer Olympics in Athens in 2004. But today, we are going to spotlight a swimmer named Chris Jacobs. He was born in 1964 in Livingston. He demonstrated prodigious talent as a swimmer as early as his preteen days, setting numerous national records in his age group and becoming a 12-time prep All-American, eventually earning a scholarship to the University of Texas in Austin, Hook'em Horns. Unfortunately, it was in Austin when Chris's chronic shoulder pain, along with a hard-partying college lifestyle, exacerbated an alcohol and drug problem that began when he was in seventh grade. As Chris later told the New York Times in a 1988 interview, within a few weeks of first trying marijuana in seventh grade, he was already onto harder drugs like cocaine and LSD. Chris told the Times, I enjoyed the way I felt. I fueled my unhappiness. I never really developed a constructive way to deal with problems, so when I felt bad, I tried to hide it. I felt better using drugs than not using them. Basically, I took anything I could get my hands on, whether I knew what it was or not. I had friends whose fathers were doctors, and they took out drugs without their fathers knowing it. Previously a B student, 12-year-old Chris's grades soon plummeted to the point where he, he nearly flunked out of school. He barely graduated, and his junior high principal told Chris's parents he was a, quote, lost child. So his parents enrolled him at Livingston's private Newark Academy, and there, Chris said, he made friendships with more upstanding young men than the, quote, real dredges he sought out in junior high. But he continued to use drugs. He was just very good at hiding his habits. Because he continued to excel at such a high level in swimming, not even Chris's coach at Newark Academy, Tom Welchek, realized the boy's problem was ongoing. 
well-check knew Chris had used in the past, but he assumed those problems had been overcome, thanks to Chris's dedication to success in the pool. But just days after starting college, Chris said he met the town's biggest cocaine dealer. To pay for drugs, he took a night job as a bartender, and as a result, his schoolwork and swim training suffered. If that weren't bad enough, the cartilage in Chris's shoulders had worn out. He was constantly in incredible pain and had to have surgery. He spent much of his days trying to numb the pain with devices that sent electrical pulses into his shoulders, and the only exercise he could perform was on a stationary bike. By the time he was a junior at UT, Chris's situation got so bad that he had to drop out of school and quit swimming. He became depressed to the point of suicidal ideation. He told the New York Times that on more than one occasion, he sat in a closet with a gun and contemplated ending it all. Fortunately, though, his swimming coach, Eddie Reese, alerted Chris's parents, who brought him back to New Jersey and checked him into the rehab center at Fair Oaks Hospital in Summit. Then, in 1987, Chris completed his sobriety and returned to Austin, where he resumed his swimming career. Miraculously, in 1988, he was competing for the U.S. at the Summer Olympics in Seoul, swimming for the men's team in the 4x100 medley in freestyle relays, as well as solo in the 100-meter freestyle. During the qualifying race for the latter event, Chris set a new world record, though in the medal round, he finished just behind his teammate, Matt Biondi, and had to take home the silver. In the relays, however, Chris was even more successful. As part of a team with Biondi, David Burkhoff, and Richard Schroeder, Chris swam the anchor leg of the 4x100 medley relay and won the gold. And in the freestyle relay, Chris was the lead swimmer on a team with Biondi, Troy Dalby, and Tom Jaeger. Chris got the team off to a strong start, though the French and Russians were close behind. Then in the final leg, thanks to Matt Biondi, the team didn't just win the gold, they set a new world record themselves. After the games, Chris made history in another way. On his way back from Seoul, he stopped in Hawaii for a brief vacation, and it was there 
and he got a tattoo of the Olympic rings near the line of his racing suit. Then a few years later, he decided he wanted a more visible tattoo of the rings, so he got a bigger version drawn prominently on his bicep. Today, countless Olympic athletes are known to have tattooed those famous rings on their bodies, but it's believed that Chris was the first Olympian to do so. And though he was nervous about displaying his ink when he began working in the financial industry in the early 90s, in more recent years he's become more comfortable showing it off, and in fact, he's even spoken to both the New York Times, this time in 2012, and the Washington Post in 2016 about how he was the one who started the trend. I'm going to take a short break, but I'll be back uh, in a few moments to play a special recording from our local history archives of an inspiring speech that Chris Jacobs gave to the people of Livingston back in 1996 when the Olympic torch passed through town. But first, let's welcome Hong Mei, who's going to share a clip of a song to commemorate our first episode of the new year. Taylor Swift has sold more than 13 million albums and has numerous awards to add to her long list of accomplishments. One day in 2017, she showed up on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon for a surprise performance. The singer sat down at the piano to play the song called The New Year's Day, which was the closing song on her album Reputation. The song includes the lines, Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you, and I will hold on to you. These words express the idea that, in the end, memories are all we have left, and we need to cherish them. When it's hard or it's wrong or we're making mistakes, I want your midnight. But I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. And I will hold on to you. Don't to the memories come a stranger to Thank you, Hong Mei. And now let's hear from Jessica, head of our Adult Services and Acquisitions Department, to tell us about some of the most anticipated books headed to our shelves in February. Are you looking forward to new books hitting our library shelves this month? Below is a list of what you can look forward to borrowing this February from the library. Please note that descriptions are taken from the publisher. Last Night by Louine Rice, February 1st. From the Amazon Charts and New York Times bestselling author of The Shadow Box and Last Day comes a breathtaking thriller about a family shaken by lies, vengeance, and a cold-blooded crime. 14 Days by Margaret Atwood, February 6th. Set in Lower East Side Tenement in the early days of the COVID-19 lockdowns, 14 Days is a surprising and irresistibly propulsive novel with an unusual twist, 
each character in this diverse, eccentric cast of New York neighbors has been secretly written by a different major literary voice. From Margaret Atwood and Douglas Preston to Tommy Orange and Celeste Ng. The Women by Kristen Hanna, February 6th. From the celebrated author of The Nightingale and the Four Winds comes Kristen Hanna's The Women, at once an intimate portrait of coming of age in dangerous time and an epic tale of a nation divided. A Love Song for Ricky Wilde by Tia Williams, February 6th. In this enchanting love story from the New York Times bestselling author of Seven Days in June, a free-spirited florist and an enigmatic musician are irreversibly linked through history, art, and the magic of Harlem. The La Lantern's Dance by Laurie King, February 13th. Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes, hoping for respite in the French countryside, are instead caught up in a case that turns both bewildering and intensely personal. The Summer Book Club by Susan Mallory, February 13th. The rules of Summer Book Club are simple. No sad books, no pressure, and yes, wine. End of Story by A.J. Finn, February 20th. I'll be dead in three minutes. Come tell my story. So writes Sebastian Trapp, reclusive mystery novelist, to his longtime correspondent, Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. With mere months to live, Trapp invites Nikki to a spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story. After Annie by Anna Quindlen, February 27th. Anna Quindlen's trademark wisdom on family, friendship, and the ties that bind us are at the center of this novel about the power of love to transcend loss and triumph over adversity by the number one New York Times bestselling author of Still Life with Breadcrumbs and One True Thing. We hope to see you at the library soon. Stop by the reference desk and let, you know, let us know what you're reading. See you soon. Bye. Thanks so much, Jessica. And now... As promised, here's a special recording from our local history archive featuring an inspiring speech from Olympic gold medalist Chris Jacobs as he returned to Livingston in 1996 for the town's Olympic torch ceremony. And now for our keynote speaker, the extraordinary Olympiad, Livingston's own Chris Jacobs. Chris is the Livingston resident who won three medals, two gold and one silver at the 1988 Seoul Korea Games. Chris broke two world records to win a gold in the medley relay and a gold in the freestyle relay. The freestyle medley record still stands. Chris won the silver in the 100 meter individual freestyle competition and today is ranked as the third fastest 100 meter freestyle in history.
Chris Jacobs is a volunteer for the U.S. Olympic Committee and a motivational speaker. In the true spirit of Livingston Hero Volunteers, Chris helps inner city kids learn to swim competitively. Currently a corporate, a corporate banker at the Bank of New York, Chris is married to Marie, the proud daddy of four-month-old Elizabeth, and Chris's mom and dad are here today. Chris Jacobs, will you please come forward? The mayor and the members of the Livingston Township Council are proud to present the Experience the Spirit Award to Chris Jacobs, who continues to live the life of the Olympic hero by serving as a role model and a leader. Guess I'm supposed to stay up here now and say something. It's great to be back in Livingston today and see everyone here supporting the torch relay run. In a way, it's not the same Livingston I remember. Every year it seems to get better and better, more involved with the youth, more involved in things like this. It's a tremendous effort by all the volunteers today, all the contributors, everyone who helped set this up for the day. This morning I had the opportunity to run with a torch in Jersey City. It was a very short run, but running with your arm up in the air in a four-pound torch gets tiring, so it ended up being a, a good distance. It was a, a tremendous thrill, as I'm sure everyone else who runs with a torch can attest to. As we watch the people come in with a torch today and we celebrate the Olympics over the next month or so, I just wanted to stress how important it is to make sure we're celebrating all of the right things. Make sure we're celebrating the Olympic efforts, everyone's best efforts, in that it's much more important the whole process of what you need to do to get to the Olympics to achieve a personal goal is more important than actually going to the Olympics themselves. I'm going to tell you a little story that unrelated to my performance at the 88 Olympics where fortunately I did everything right for a very long time and was one of the lucky ones who managed to go to the Olympics and do well. After 88 I retired for about a year and a half, thought I was finished swimming, wanted to finish school, wanted to sort of get my life on the road and not end up like a couple people I knew who kept staying and in well until their 30s, trying to hang on and eventually getting sort of chiseled out of the sport, became less and less graceful over time. I thought that I was finished in 88 and retired happily. About a year later, I decided I missed the competition so much, I missed the traveling, I missed all of my friends, I missed the camaraderie, that I figured I would take another stab at it, I would try and make the world championship team that was going to Perth, Australia. In what I think is typical fashion for most people, 
I took a lot for granted. I had already reached a point that I was happy with in swimming, so the motivation wasn't there. Didn't work quite as hard, missed a lot of workouts. Anyway, the day came at World Championship Trials at my home pool in Austin, Texas, in the morning. And I don't know how many of you know about swimming, but you swim prelims in the morning. Generally, the top eight will come back at night. And of those eight, usually six will go to an Olympic team, six will go to a World Championship team. This is for relay events. For individual events, just the top two will go. After the morning swim, I was second to a very close friend of mine at Texas who I had always beaten. And I figured, I'm a better swimmer. I'll come back at night. I'll beat him. I'll go to the Olympics. It'll be a great time or I'll go to World Championships. Maybe I'll hang on another two years for the Olympics. That night, I got back there. I, I wasn't really focused. The 100-meter freestyle is two laps. It's down and back of a very long pool. I think Northland Pool, if you swim end-to-end -end the long way, is 50 meters. So down and back. Halfway down on the first lap, I started feeling slow. I felt like I was spinning my arms, not going anywhere. Tried to turn quickly, accelerate out of the wall. Put my head down, tried racing into the wall. Didn't really feel like I had it in me. In a short race, like 100 or a 50, everyone usually touches the wall pretty close together. There's a big wave, a lot of splashing. Everyone touches and looks up at the scoreboard. At the University of Texas, where this meet was held, there's a very big scoreboard up to the left. It has all of the lanes listed, one through eight, all of the places, one through eight, the person's name, and a little space for a world record or American record performance. When we touched the wall, I looked up, I looked over, I saw a seven, and I, I thought this, this can't be. I looked up again, I, I saw a seven again. So I sort of pulled myself up next to my block, looked at the number on the side to make sure it was lane five, the same lane I had started in, looked up to lane five on the scoreboard, went across, and I was seventh place. And one of the worst feelings I've ever had. The, the moral of this story and the tie-in to rewarding all of the efforts that people endure to achieve their goals is that what made that experience so terrible was that I knew I had blown the previous year off. I hadn't worked very hard, took too much for granted, assumed that I'd be able to do it, and didn't do everything that it would take to achieve the success that I wanted. And knowing that I had done that made it impossible for me to ever know that had I trained really hard that year and the year before, if I would have been good enough to make the team. So it was a very empty feeling and I climbed out of the water. I know most people can probably relate to this kind of feeling, went straight to the locker room, into a stall in the bathroom, and tears came out. I had totally failed in front of my sort of home pool crowd. So the point of all this is that if you're prepared, if you've done all the hard work, if you've put everything into it that you know will work towards the end of achieving that goal, you get a different sense of satisfaction. If you fall short of your goal, you know at that moment you perform to the best of your ability and that gives you peace of mind. So as we watch the runners come in today and we celebrate a lot of them for being community heroes, 
celebrate all the volunteers today who have helped out and then go on and watch the Olympics and celebrate their achievements. It's always important to remember all of the people who worked just as hard, didn't make it, but gave it their all. I'd like to thank Livingston and Mayor Cohen and everyone else involved for this award and having me here today. And hope everyone enjoys the celebration. Thank you. You can watch a video of that speech along with over two additional hours of footage from that 1996 Olympic torch ceremony on our local history archive uh, online. Just go to digifindit.com slash Livingston. That's D-I-G-I-F-I-N-D dash I-T dot com slash Livingston. And hover over the oral history button, click videos, and on the next page you'll see a number of fascinating video recordings from Livingston's history archive, including the one titled Olympic Hero and Torch Ceremony. And real quick, I'd like to mention the sources I consulted in today's episode, starting with an article from the New York Times titled Swimmer Outraces His Past by Frank Litsky from September 18th, 1988. Also from the New York Times, the article U.S. Swimmers Go for Gold and a Tattoo by Karen Course from July 23rd, 2012. There's the entry on Chris Jacobs over at njsportsheroes.com. Then from the 2017 spring edition of Swim Swam magazine, the article Chris Jacobs, Godfather of the Olympic Rings Tattoo by Jared Anderson. And from the Washington Post, the article The One Tattoo That Only We Can Get, Olympians Put Some Skin in the Games, written by Rick Massey and originally published August 4th, 2016. Okay, we're almost out of time for this episode, but before we wrap up, let's hear from Archana to tell us about some of the great programs we have scheduled in February in honor of Black History Month and President Lincoln's birthday. Hello, listeners. Wishing you all a very happy, healthy, and peaceful 2024. I'm delighted to share with you some highlights of our adult programs coming up in February. Black History Month is an annual celebration honoring the triumphs and struggles of African Americans throughout U.S. history and celebrating their rich cultural heritage. The 2024 theme is African Americans and the arts, spanning the many impacts Black Americans have had on visual arts, music, cultural movements, and more. We are marking the occasion with two lectures that highlight the artistic contributions of African Americans. First, on February 5th at 7 p.m., we present Harmonizing History, celebrating the legacy of three black composers. Every composer brings their own unique voice to their orchestral compositions. The music of some brilliant composers of African descent has too long been neglected in the Western classical music tradition. Three black composers who have created memorable orchestral music are Joseph Ballone, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor and Florence Prince. Dr. Robert Butts, musical composer, conductor and lecturer, will delve into the lives and musical legacy of these influential composers. Boulogne was French and a prolific composer who wrote string quartets, symphonies and concertos and made his mark in Paris in the late 18th century. He is remembered as the first classical composer of African origins.
trailer was English and he was active at the turn of the 20th century. He skillfully married African-American folk music with concert music. Florence Prince was an American and one of the first women to have her symphonic work performed by major symphony orchestras. Dr. Butts will give an overview of their lives and works and show, show us how they were part of the musical world of their eras. He will also play video clips from the performances of each of their major works. And then on February 26th at 7pm, we present Lena Horn, Smashing Barriers. Lena Mary Calhoun Horn was a groundbreaking African-American singer, actress, civil rights activist and dancer. Horn's career spanned more than 70 years, appearing in film, television, and theater. With a unique blend of extraordinary beauty, talent, and grit, black vocalist and actress Horn overcame a troubled family life, the bigotry of the Jim Crow era, and the cluelessness of Hollywood to become a musical icon. Entertainment historian John Kendrick returns to celebrate the legacy of a show business legend and activist who broke new ground for black performers with backstage stories and exciting performance videos. we also celebrate another special occasion and that is President Abraham Lincoln's birthday on February 12th. On that very day at 7pm we bring to you a virtual lecture entitled Booth Lincoln and the Shot that Changed America. In commemoration of the 215th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birthday join historian Greg Cagiano for a look at his life and political career and how he became one of the most beloved and controversial presidents in American history. The program will also delve into the life and career of his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, and cover the chain of events and politics that led to Lincoln's untimely demise at Ford's Theatre. Greg Cargiano is a published author, historian, lecturer and consultant. This program is being presented virtually over Zoom and registration is required. The Zoom link will be emailed the day before the event. We hope you attend and enjoy these talks and our various other program offerings as well. Thank you very much. Well, that'll do it for this episode of L-Town Radio. Thank you, Archana, Hongmei, and Jessica for your contributions. Of course, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. 
I hope you'll tune in again next month. You can listen to and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can read our daily blog at livingstonlibrary.org slash blog, which is, of course, part of our website, livingstonlibrary.org, where you can search our catalog, browse our events calendar, or use one of our many, many digital resources 24 hours a day. Of course, we're also open seven days a week for all your librarian needs, so I hope you'll come down and see us in person as well. Until next time, stay curious.